Greetings, everyone. Welcome to the More Podcast again. Welcome. I hope you enjoyed our last episode. This episode is going to be a little bit different. This time, you get to hear more about me, who I am, what I'm all about, and why we've created the More Podcast to begin with the United Association of Moors and the More SERP. What is the More community? all about so i hope you are able to tune in and you enjoy what you get to learn peace okay so it's a pleasure to have you here um we're going to be talking about Uh, the thing that you do, I found very interesting the cultural narrative, the cultural storytelling. Okay, narrative at the end is basically going to mean the same thing. So, can you like share a little bit of your background with us, so at least we know um, where you are and what you, what you are doing? Okay, um, yeah. So my name is Nakaja. I grew up mostly, primarily in Washington D.C. in the United States of America. Um, I was privilege to be able to have be exposed to African history um, within the DC public charter school system in America and that kind of invigorated me to be to love education one and to be inspired by education but as I grew older I realized that having African an African-centered education isn't something that you will see in the American education system for a maraud of different reasons. Um, so that public charter school, charter schools indicate that it's more so private. So they were at, the the teachers were able to create a curriculum that was centered around that student body and who were African themselves and and wanted to share that knowledge because they saw the worth in that. But outside of that charter school, you won't see that anywhere else as far as like I didn't see it when I was living down south in America and I didn't see it when I got older um, in high school or in college unless I was specifically intentionally trying to take those types of courses. And then even then, a lot of times when you are in university, you have um, sometimes white people, Europeans, like British people, um, people who are German, whatever the case may be, who are teaching African history or African politics or whatever the case may be. So when that is happening, the narrative is going to be one that makes them the victor or which makes their them and their people um, look better than the African people themselves. So it's not coming from an Afrocentric perspective. Um, and then even when I was in the Air Force Academy, um, they don't really focus on any type of history outside of uh, military history or, or war history either way, right? So so this learning of the an Afrocentric way of, or, or African history is kind of obsolete now, nearly, in societies. Um, so that's why I, I've been inspired to create something called the United Association of Moors, and it has a, an LLC called Moore SERP, which was dedicated to creating a search engine for African people to be able to easily find um, the information that 
helps them learn about who they are. So we're talking about African scholarship, African literature, um, and African resources. What are the African businesses that exist worldwide that um, can help me be able to be more African-owned and I'm only buying from African people. So this was the kind of concept behind it because I saw that in our current societies, that's something that's currently suppressed severely. Uh, but I, I think the group consciousness is beginning to change, but that's a little bit about me. Thank you so much. That is really uh, very interesting to, to see. All right, now let me hang on a little bit um, as you were still growing up uh, a little bit in this area. So what kind of information were you receiving from your parents trying to give you a background of uh, who you are? My parents? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so actually my great-grandfather, Harold, Harold Lee the Bethune II, he was actually someone that was really into um, African people, like protecting the African people. He was someone who ran for governor in Louisiana, and he was very serious about um, the liberation of African people and, and representing the African people because he saw where we were at mentally. Um, so I, I would say that something like that runs in my family, like that, that leadership role that is needed within African communities and especially as it pertains to what's going on in America. Um, alongside like m most of my family like they're just well educated in a variety of different topics but my uncle he's really into um similar similar information as far as like history we have like indigenous people in our family so he knows all of that different stuff so this is a lot of the things that i was um exposed to at a young age different stories that were told to me um by my elders so uh -huh. Thank you for that. All right, now uh, you're still a little bit younger this time. You are still beginning to to find yourself in the society. So among your peer, among your friends, as you go out, what kind of conversation will sort of help you in this area? You are not yet ma you are mature now, so I'm talking to me, but I'm talking of them as you are trying to find your feet on the ground. What kind of information will you like assess? I'm trying to understand. A young person growing up in the United States, say in your in this area, uh, the kind of information that you generally receive, yeah. I think it was like my experiences with people. I've always kind of been someone that kind of was separate, separated from the crowds of people. So it was really my experiences with these crowds of people. Like for example, the middle school I had went to that had an Afrocentric curriculum. Well, something that I got to experience and I even analyze today is the concept of the crab barrel theory, right? Because of how things were situated in that school, they had a, um, they had like a hierarchy of intelligence nearly and I don't, I don't really want to call it that but that's really what it was they they tested the young people and if you tested high on the test you were put in a specific class and if you tested low on the test you were put in a lower class and what that did was that it caused a, a hierarchy amongst middle schoolers can you imagine and we didn't realize it at the time but the people who had tested low and were in the lower classes would really pick at and bully the ones that were in the top classes right because they kind of give this inferiority and supporty superior complex and what that what that was it's like almost emulating the same systems that we are a part of um 
once we joined white society it wasn't very like communal right it, it was you separating or dividing a group of people and when realizing things like that when i'm older that that's kind of what i learned from and then experiencing things of being you know called different things by your your fellow counterpart that looks like you you get to understand um the severity of the psychological slave trauma that exists in our people and even at young ages like you know when you have people in your in your community that's you know arguing with you or bullying you about being a certain skin complexion well you have to think you know like they they must have been taught that in the home one and then two they must struggle from self-hatred and the famous intellectual Amos N. Wilson actually wrote a book on this called The Psychology of Self-Hatred, um, how to reactivate uh, the Africanness, the psychological African Africanness of a person. And it, it's really, I think that's a really good book for people to read because you really get to understand how our decisions are shaped by our environment and how that makes us think the way that we do. And that's exactly what I got to see at young ages like that, even into high school, seeing like how people self-sabotage themselves or separated themselves from the current curriculum because they didn't see themselves represented in the curriculum. Like I, I learned more so from the experiences I had with people, less so from quote unquote friends if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Like I said, thank you so much for that. That is very important because, of course, now as we are currently speaking, we are speaking as adults, we are mature, we have gone through a lot of experience. Uh, so we have formed our opinion and they are very solid. There is no doubt about that. So, of course, I'm still uh, trying to see when we see younger growing up and uh, sort of influences that we have around us. Those ones also have a lot of uh, impact on how we shape our realities. Uh, so probably this is the last question I'm going to ask you related to that before we move to the current state into what you're doing, looking at cultural storytelling and all of that. So uh, looking at maybe books that you could read, because these uh, books have a lot of influence also on people, on what kind of um, book do you have to read. Uh, so tell me, what kind of books were you having access to as you were still growing or maybe going to secondary school, uh, high school? Okay, you call it high school there, right? So, uh, so tell me about that. Like, was there any um, books that actually influenced you in a particular way that you got to read? You saw somewhere in the library or things like that, mm -hmm. relating to African history? Yeah. Yeah, I remember like we were told to read things like in in middle secondary school things by like Aladu Aquino. Um, the narrative of Aladu Aquino, uh, which was really impactful, was really sad. Um, he he was someone that was actually taken from uh, West Africa and brought to the Americas, and he had remembered it. Um, he he remembered nearly everything, and he remembers the time that he was taken. The time is like he witnessed people getting beaten a certain way, it's specifically women and being raped, and how he couldn't do anything. And he remembers, you know, just being in fear of his life because what he saw was happening around him to the people that looked like him. And when he got the chance to be able to not be treated in that way. He documents that he took it. He took that chance, right? And and how that made him feel and how that made him, you know, 
weak inside and things like that. And I just remember hearing and, and reading how gruesome um, that story was at such a young age. It, it was um, it was daunting and and it enraged me to want to change it. Um, we, we used to read primary sources from different European explorers and things like that that used to go into different places around the world let's say like the Americas for example and uh, describe the people that live there who were African but they would like identify them as Indian or, or whatever the case may be and then describe them as being savagery or, or whatever the case may be so we would do things like that I also remember reading uh the autobiography of Malcolm X, like we used to read things from Kwame Kwame Nkrumah. Kwame Nkrumah, um, Kwame Ture, uh so many different things at such a young age and we were being ex- we were just being exposed with this like African pan Africanism and and almost African consciousness in and nationalism that existed on a global scale. So and we used to be told African stories almost like our teacher would be kind of like a griot at at a um at that age too. So it it was really really interesting. So he used to tell us the story of Nefertiti, Nefertari, all different types of stuff. So it was very very well engaging. All right, thank you so much for that. Now we are in the story. Uh, tell me, personally speaking, uh, those information that you had access to, those books that you may mention of, and those people who came to tell you about African story, how much impact did it have on you? Uh, how much impact do you think have on the people as they grow up? How much impact did it have on me and other people around yeah. me? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think... It, it hit other people differently, but I was actually in the eighth grade when um, Trayvon Martin was killed, right? And I remember we had this student in our class that she was she was black, but she wanted to be white or something. She had some type of complex, right? That happens sometimes. You have some African people that will swear that they're white or swear that they're not African. And she was one of them at a young age. And I remember her saying something to the effect of, oh, that's what he gets. Like, he should have never had a hood on. He probably had a gun, whatever the case may be. He got what he deserved. And he was killed by a police officer that I think was off duty, right? George Zimmerman, it was. And I was just so, I was like, how could this happen? Like, he was nearly our age at the time. And I was upset. And then when she said that, it was like a, a surge of rage came over me. And then I saw that everyone around me in my class wasn't saying anything. Everyone was silent and I was the only one who was like willing to like like go to battle with her right then and there because I was like how could you say something like that and you're in a school that's predominantly African right it doesn't make sense and 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 that mindset like was just so it like broke my heart because it was like that was a young African boy you know what I mean and I think that that um, example describes how the information we were being told impacted me versus other people. Some people, it just made them want to be, and, and I'm writing a manuscript on this now, but it wanted them to assimilate into this hierarchy, right? It just wanted them to become the oil of the, of the machine which oppresses our people it scared them like like they were running off of fear a lot of them ended up running on fear and you know they just want to protect their nuclear family if even they can do that right so they're just trying to join the capitalist system some people 
will um, try to what's the word deflect from being African like turn away from it submerge themselves with their white counterparts whatever the case may be you want to integrate and then the other option is to is to want to uh, create unity amongst your own people and want to educate your own people and empower your own people so you can create your own communities and institutions and I think that's the three things you got you got fear you got the assimilator and then you got the warriors Thank you so much for that. All right. Now, I talk to you as a scholar, so I'm going to ask from um, a definition from you. And the term Afrocentrism is something that a lot of people uh, make use of. And I think you have made mention of it up to like two times in your explanation. Can you give me a definition of it or a description of it? What does it mean by Afrocentrism or Afrocentric? Or, yeah. Yeah, actually, a person that coined that was um, Professor Malifi Ashante, who's currently at the Temple University. And I had the pleasure of talking to him recently. And how he described Afrocentricity is being anyone can be a part of the this paradigm of Afrocentricity, right? Like, it's the idea of bringing agency to a group of people who have been discriminated against and, and to bring in the narrative that has been um, silenced nearly, right? Our, our narratives have been silenced for hundreds of years. So it's, it's bringing an agency to the African perspective. And it, but it's not really only for the African perspective. It's for the global community. Because being African doesn't mean that you're just only prioritizing African. You're prioritizing humanity, right? Because what's happened to our communities is inhumane. It's a form of genocide, although the genocide convention won't, won't uh realize that or say that right so that that's really what it is it's bringing agency um to a group of people who have been harmed uh -huh. so you said that um, the word genocide would be used in terms of how the african have so far i don't know can you say something more about that because looking up uh, today of course we talk about uh, six million jews that were uh, massacred by the nazis uh, but if we look at africa um, far more than that have actually happened but we don't usually use the word genocide to describe what has happened to the african people so i'm trying to understand in what context are you saying uh, it's not really used is that it's not qualified to be used or help me understand that just say anything right. about that yeah so i was actually talking to a, a professor recently um his name is jeremy gunn and he's currently in morocco uh, where i am and we were, we were discussing and he he was someone who had studied law and he was actually in the law field in dc and for constitutional law and human rights and i was asking him okay so could the african people sue um sue the corporation united states of america for the their genocide that has been placed upon them and they're like he was like oh well, it, it's not feasible you can maybe sue them for the mass murder but even then you have the ex ex posto facto uh, ex post facto laws that need to be considered right because there's a certain time frame that you can't go back in the past and say that oh you're trying to sue these corporations or this corporation for the 
illegal slave trade and especially if it wasn't illegal at that time although that it was right we know that but then he was talking about how there are certain states that did have it legalized and the way that they were able to go around that is because they created laws they created legal codes to say that african people were considered three-fifths of a human so technically it wouldn't have been illegal at that time because they had created those types of laws um and then alongside with the whole genocide thing the genocide convention was created in in 1940 and it was specifically created for the case of what was happening to the jewish people um in vienna so they like that that's particularly what that was for and if we wanted to sum up everything that happened like in in not only in south africa but across the continent of africa including the in the americas and the africans that were brought to the americas he was saying that it, it would not be considered it would be nearly impossible to be able to do that which i think is absurd because that what has happened to the African people embodies embodies the definition of genocide, right? And then it goes into the case of, of trying to prove it and trying to create those statistics and to lump some of them together. So what I realized in the conversation I was having with him is what he was doing was um, dividing, dividing up what happened. He was like, oh, well, if you want to say that, and then not to even mention the current legal cases that's been going on with different... Um, American corporations that have fundamentally failed when you get try you're, you're trying to get African people to sue different um, corporations in America and and it's just it's not going through right because they have these white companies have protections on them like the recent case of that is uh, Nestle Google Apple all these different things for child slavery um, even and child trafficking or human trafficking in general like they're they're not being prosecuted because the people who created the law it was created to protect them it was it was created to protect caucasian people and caucasian interests it wasn't it wasn't created to protect african people right on on any scale it wasn't created to protect the african in america and it wasn't created to protect humanity in general was only created to protect a specific group of people um but in in the case of oh so in the case of the division goes he was saying like oh well if you wanted to prosecute the corporation for genocide of the indigenous native americans then you can do that but from what my my um scholarship tells me is that the native americans didn't identify themselves as native americans they were indigenous yes but a lot of them look just as african as the african that's in nigeria do you understand so it's like it's it's that the divisiveness and those racial terms that start to confuse and to try to make it almost impossible to be able to prosecute these types of institutions and then another thing he tried to do is say oh well think about barack obama barack obama didn't have descendants of slaves so even if you were to have that type of legal case and it was to go through and then you were able to have reparations which i think the correct term is restitutions not reparations would it go to people like barack obama who never had descendants of slaves so how are you going to find all the people who had descendants of slaves and didn't have descendants of slaves right so it was a lot of confusion as to that like creating confusion as to how that that would go about and that's the state that we're in we're in the state of confusion like so that gives you a little bit uh -huh. of context. 
All right. So, and that state of confusion, uh, confusion, if we understand it perfectly, is actually created to be like that. So, at least it helps the person who is um, uh, who is oversee the confusion to get a better advantage of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, at, so, a couple of uh, weeks ago, actually, it should be over a month ago, now I interviewed uh, a historian in UK uh, of, uh, of a Jamaica origin. Her name is Selena Carty, and she said exactly what you're saying, you know. Uh, because we talked about law, we talked about also history. Is that when you make the law, looking at the case of the European descendant who are supposedly the lords of this world, when they make the law, they make the law to protect themselves. They didn't make it to protect other people. So when other people then come and say, oh, you break the law, it becomes very difficult for them to get justice. Mm-hmm. So that, uh, like um, uh, Ben was also saying, uh, the famous historian, what you are getting is just this, not justice. Is you we cannot get just we cannot get justice from there. You are only going to get just this. Yeah, exactly. All right. So um the question I really want to ask you now is um okay, let's now move a little bit towards uh, the, the project that you are working in, which is the cultural narrative, the cultural storytelling. Tell me how it started and uh, what exactly you are aiming up with this project. Right, so current, how did it start? It started from, uh, I, I can't even coin when it started. I think it started when I was in the military and when I noticed that African people seeking their own history and their own knowledge that empowers their identity is something that's taboo for white societies. And when they see you doing it, it's, it, it brings upon a fear in them. They're like, oh, okay, like, like she knows who she is right like so that that got me intrigued with the idea of learning more even more about myself and not only learning about my history and finding my my own narratives that were taught by my own ancestors but getting other african people to be inspired to learn that as well so i i think it, it really started then once i had um left the military and, and i started to get engaged with with the content that was fulfilling me which is learning about what my elders what my ancestors had left me it's it's not like everything that we need to do as african people has already been done and already been well documented by by our our elders and our ancestors who have passed away which is a beautiful thing so i was just trying to tap into that but the unfortunate thing is is that there's not a lot of people in our communities that are that are interested or that are aware of that because they don't see any benefit in it they don't see any benefit of, of knowing who they are knowing what their ancestors left them um but that's kind of what started it and currently with the project that i'm working on is I'm, I'm trying to capture the narratives and the stories of indigenous people on the continent so i was just in ghana and i was able to understand a bit more about different ethnic groups that live there and i was really documenting the effects of westernization and globalization on their communities what has it changed as far as their traditions and their languages and and whatever the case may be because i I think that is uh an, an important thing to realize that in this age of of the digital era in this age of globalization that is having a profound impact on Africa, which a lot of people don't understand in the diaspora. Um, and especially as it pertains to urban areas. So what I, re- what I have been realizing is that, for example, in Accra, 
the people complain about the corrupt government system but are also in itself emulating that government system and i think it, it has to do it's a theory of mine that it has to do with having this you know this system of capitalism right they're trying to survive it's literally like they're mimicking the dog eat dog complex that's going on right so um it, it's it's really having a, a negative impact on the the traditions of communalism and taking care of each other and, and all different things and my, and i'm assuming that this is happening across the the continent in urban areas specifically right so i'd imagine in lagos that that's the same issue that's going on um in in casablanca i, I want to say I, I i was in casablanca and now i'm in rabat I would say that the same same thing is going on, right? The 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 neo-colonialism is having a, a depreciating effect on the morality of uh, African communities. Uh -huh. Thank you for that. All right. Uh, yeah, you correctly said that a lot of people are not interested in knowing about the history of Africa, the history of themselves, of course, by a lot of people. <coughs> sorry we are here referring to the african people uh, now uh, what i'm sort of worried about is that is it possible that the because of how the africans have been reduced uh, they are therefore you know for people to be talking about history sometime they need to talk of just as a human being you need to take care of the primary existence existential thing necessities no you don't have food you need to have uh, shelter you then you can begin to talk about philosophy and some other things uh, in the ordinary sense of faith of course there are some people who go against some of those things and still able to come out with something extraordinary so if you look around nearly the whole of africa you see that people are barely surviving and because they are barely surviving, I think it fits perfectly to what, what you are referring to as dog eat dog. It, it that anything can go. And if we remain on this uh, edge of precipice, so where we are just we are basically falling, you know, it's just a question of who's going to get to the ground first. It becomes very difficult for people to really stand up and say where are we really coming from because the basic thing has not been taken care of mm -hmm. if you are a man your wife and your kids uh they don't have food to eat it, you might really want to stand up for something but because those things are there that are dragging you it becomes very difficult anyway this is just my reflection mm -hmm. what do you think of that is it that we as a people we just naturally do not like to know about ourselves or because we are under a situation that is making it difficult for us to know about ourselves. I'm looking at yeah. Africans in general, also in the diaspora. Yeah, so I think that, okay, I'll give an example. I remember one time I was talking to a young man and I was telling him about, you know, he, I think he may have said something that had triggered me. So I was telling him about our history and what's going on with the African people. And as I was explaining it to him, he didn't he didn't debate me because he knew it was true. And he said, well, you know what? Uh, I don't want to talk about that because once I, once I think about it and once I talk about it, I'll be enraged, right? And that wasn't the only time I've heard about that. So I think that it is almost intentional 
for African people to not want to reflect on actually what's going on because it's easier. It's easier to be docile and complacent with the situation than you're in than to fight out of fear. Like I said, it goes back to that fear complex. And I think that what's going on in the Horn of Africa and in different places, honestly, is uh, you, you, you don't have to choose a house. You, you don't have to choose the basic necessities or your identity or your dignity like you don't have to do one or the other you can do you can have it both like why do you have to choose and i think the way that that happens is for us to prioritize unity and community i think a lot of things that are happening and why things are able to get away as to what's happening on the continent or within the diaspora everywhere because there, there's injustice everywhere um because th this globalization in in the form of um neocolonialism is taking an impact everywhere whether we realize it or not um is that uh we're basically being we have to unify and in, in, in order for us to unify is that we have to be able to understand what the actual issue is. What is the common denominator? The, the tyrannical uh, president or, or person that's in power right now is just a manifestation as what happened in colonial times. And he's only an agent of a system, right? And once people are able to realize that type of information, then the argument doesn't become over my tribe is better than your tribe or my ethnic group is over your ethnic group. It's like, nah, like this person this person is is only one piece of the puzzle or this argument is only one piece of the puzzle we need to look at the the grandeur the the bigger picture and the and i think that that can happen once you have people within the diaspora caring as to what's going on outside of their bubble of their box that's that's happening so a lot of people aren't well educated in america at like period that's the statement they're not well educated people think that you can get proper education in america it's not true that's a fallacy that that's just what they this is what they want you to believe the only type of proper education you can get is the education you get for yourself one two um people aren't educated as to what's happening on the continent they may have these different stereotypes they 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 know of but they don't know to the the intricacies as to how european countries put these types of situations in place like for example the congo i, I just wrote an article as to the case in congo where there's a, a um a group of people who a group a group of families who are trying to sue these big tech companies for basically um child slavery and it's probably ongoing to this day and like i said before they weren't able to get prosecuted for it because there's um, legal codes that's protecting those types of institutions but they the reason why congo is in such a destitute state that they're in is because they the pat the historical past as to how colonials in the past were able to use the the divide and conquer technique to get the congo in the position that it's in so they didn't even have the the resources the human resources or the military resources to protect themselves right so then they caused strife in rwanda and then that caused a whole nother strife to go on within congo so all these things are interconnected and once we're educated on those things it could help us better want to assist each other and want to unify with each other in order to get to the actual the actual root of the problem and and identify solutions and that's the only way so i look at it as this for example the africans are like the door 
the locked door, right? And then the other Africans in the Americas within the diaspora is kind of like the key to that to that locked door. Together, they are able to open up into, and you're able to utilize that doorway to get to the to the next step, and then forward on to all the other doors that exist. But without each other, they're useless. It's just a locked door and a key. You understand? So if if we were able to get the diaspora educated as to what's going on and get them to have an African consciousness that's centered towards unity and wanting to help each other and to empower each other, then it would be easy for the diaspora to be able to create funds to help the Horn of Africa and not only to help, but to help themselves, to build communities together, to go far. Like we could go far with each other, but that that's the whole mentality of an African consciousness, but you only have that's idealistic what I'm saying. So you only have a critical mass of people who will want to do that. And that's the state that we're in now. So it's going to take um, a much slower and gradual process. Mm-hmm. It's going to take much slower and gradual process. Yeah, yeah. It's going to take a gradual process. Um, is there the importance of, uh, to, of course, to be able to get to where we are going uh how much importance does understanding history plays here? Before you respond, I want you to pay attention to what happened in Nigeria. Up until recently, history was actually taken away from curriculum in Nigeria for more than 10 years. Actually, far more than 10 years, but at least for the period of 10 years, 1999 to 2000, uh, uh, 2000, uh, I think like last year, that was when history was again restored in Nigeria. Now you will ask yourself, okay, what could be the reason behind that? Nigeria is known, okay, I know, I believe that we are not free, but we have a kind of a semblance of freedom in that at least we do organize our election. We do have people that are there. Why could history be taken away from the people not knowing about themselves? If they don't know about this, how can they ever do anything reasonable in this life with the sense of creating something for themselves? What would be the importance of history, knowing about yourself in finding a way, finding our own route in this world? I don't know if the question was a little bit confusing. No, 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 it's not. So that's an important point. And we talked about that. Who? Yeah, I talked I talked about that with um, one of my business partners, Ikuma. And he's in in Nigeria too, and he discussed um, history and and how it had been taken away, but also the fact that it it was shaped by um, British colonials who are still very heavily involved in Nigeria. But um, we have to understand that history, like yes, they call it history, but the the past tells us what happened before because it is going to repeat itself right things are are cyclical um that that's why you have people who are into um different religions and they study sacred texts because it's not useless right like think about it those are like ancient texts that we're reading or or that or that we've tried to preserve and we continue to read because it it doesn't become obsolete because a lot of those stories are stories of wisdom things that have happened and things that will take root again that's why you have a lot of people who reference for example the bible or the quran or um the torah right you you have people that reference these things because the past never just goes away it 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 comes around again things aren't linear how you know 
the Western education system wants you to believe. It's circle, it's cyclical, right? And the past, the history tells you the past and it dictates your future. You're able to either you study the past and you're able to know, okay, what's going to happen? And you, uh, you become docile and you let that, that past repeat itself or you change that past and you create a different future. And then you create a whole nother cyclical wave that's going on. Um, so that, that's kind of that's kind of the concept of history. And that's why it's important. So if you're able to take someone's um, past and history and, and education systems away, you're able to control their future. Does that make sense? Yeah, of course, it does make sense. It does make sense. And now, uh, cultural storytelling, that is a conversation that we are having uh, just now. Uh, can you say something about the term itself, cultural storytelling? Can you break it down a little bit? Okay, cultural storytelling just entails being able to give people the opportunity to tell their own stories and their own um, dialects and their own ways, right, of, of their own traditions and being able to share those stories with other people because i believe everyone has a story and a lot of people don't a lot of people don't like that or a lot of people don't think so i mean oh, my, my life is pretty it's pretty you know simple pretty original like it's it's the same old be all but the thing is is that storytelling is is so important and it's 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 vital because it's not about us seeing ourselves as oh we're the best or i had an amazing story let me like write it down or whatever the case may be no it's about documentation and documenting your own story because when you don't document you, what happened in your lifetime best believe someone else is you know what i mean and it might not be the way that you like it and but by that time it'll be too late another thing is that it's important to storytell your own narrative and it's for your own legacy, your own community, your own children. You can pass that down. So I, I really harp on cultural storytelling and being able to capture other people's stories that may not have the time or want to because we're in a space where African people can recreate our own narratives and retell our own stories in a way that that has truth to them and in a way that actually aids to the African interest. So that's the idea of of capturing people's stories and narratives. I'm I'm a an anthropologist and I'm into um, international economics. So so but really the harp on it. I'm I'm an anthropologist. I'm an African anthropologist, right? So I come into it with entirely different intentions as to why it was created. But it's really to preserve our culture and the diversity of our culture. There's unity and diversity, right? Yeah, yeah, I agree with you. Absolutely. At least more than 100 <laughs> percent. All right. Now, uh, how simple is it to even dig up African history so that we can understand it? Now, you see, this is very important in that in history, uh, African history, some people think that it has not been documented, but actually it has been documented. It's just that it has not been documented in a way that we think it was documented. Uh, you see, when people write, they write for themselves to understand it. Mm -hmm. They don't really write in coded way for some other persons to understand it. Now, for you to understand it, you are going to have to decode what they are telling you. Right. Now, 
how do we dig up African history? Because this is the foundation of human being. These have been the first people that first taught man, that first understand how to organize a society. Science, astronomy, physics, biology, think of anything. But today, we are looked upon as stupid people who have never done anything at all. And also, because we are expecting that other people will come and probably tell us our history, maybe looking at a document from Harvard University or uh, maybe uh, somewhere in Paris or maybe somewhere in Vatica. But it's never going to happen. This is our job and it's a very tedious one. So I repeat the question again. How simple is it to dig up African history so we can understand it? Yeah, I, I definitely, I know I want to address a point. I guarantee everybody who ends up listening to this podcast that once you change the narrative, when you have, when you speak to someone of a different ethnic group and they try to make you feel like your your people are stupid or inferior, whatever the case may be, once you change that narrative with that person, they will go silent right the the point is is that we believe in that fallacy some people believe in that fallacy but once you don't believe it and you know what actually happened they go silent right okay so then to your to your point about how difficult it is it's very difficult right there that's why you have it's an entire field of study um, archaeology, anthropology, linguists, uh, historians, all these different things. All these people are in their own field work trying to decode it, right? Because it, it's so intricate and it's not only related to um, Africa. It, it, because of all of the confusion that has taken place, information is, is dispersed everywhere, right? Like you have the americas that that have african history and intertwined in it you have asiatic countries that have history that's intertwined in it you have um even the middle east that has history that's intertwined in it in in european countries that have african histories are intertwined in it so all of it is is so decoded and it takes so much time that um there's no plausible way to get it in one lifetime because it's it's over hundreds of of thousands of years that that you would have to decode and and read the code because someone else came and wanted to create meetings in order to change histories right that's what happened with the bible you had the council of nicaea where people wanted to change the way that sacred texts were written and they wanted to write a certain people out or or curse a certain people right um and writing so it, it takes a lot right to be able to mesh things together and to understand things on a on a globe on a on a scale that is accurate but then that's why you have to always continuously research and do readings and and it's a it's a it's a lifetime it's it's a lifetime's work that is always ongoing and it and it really helps when there's a lot of people or everyone who is doing this type of work essentially so it's very difficult. Mm -hmm. Okay, it's very difficult, but we are going to have to do it anyway because it is our job. 
Now, when you go around, because you did mention of going to Ghana, Accra, uh, going to some other part, you are in, in Morocco, and in some other part of Africa, you have gone as an anthropologist, as a researcher, okay, also as a businesswoman. But anyway, let's concentrate more on the anthropology of the history, research, and digging up of this data, this information. What do you find among the people? Like, what do, when you look into the eyes of the people, when you look at their faces, what do you see in terms of what you want to understand? Mm, what do I see in their eyes of the people? I want to, I think what I'm seeking is um, the, the, what was the fire, like the, the passion to want to um, rebuild something that's sustainable for them and their children? That's really what I, I'm I'm looking for and seeking. But when I'm talking to different um, people on the continent, I hear a lot of times that they, they, they have stories that's been passed on to them orally and, and they have these stories of resistance and things like that, but they're currently in a state where you know, they don't want to risk their lives. And I'm seeking for the, the people to be in a state where they can no longer take the, the oppression that's going on. And they're ready to rebuild something for themselves and not wait for a government to do it, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, it does. All right, now looking at the opportunity of, because story is also, um, how do I call it? There is also a lot of money to be made by just telling our story. In that, uh, you look at a lot of uh, movies that have been done on stories of on the the experiences of people. If we have a lot of book being written about our story, we will also make money from it. Apart from just educating ourselves about our past. Okay, you being a businesswoman and also an anthropologist, a historian, a researcher, where do you see opportunity in the telling of our story, cultural storytelling? Where do you see the people being able to benefit from it? Yeah, so, I mean, if we're talking about benefiting from it financially, that's an interesting concept. If you want some fiat money from your storytelling, let's talk about it. Um, it's possible, right? So a lot of, a lot of like, I don't know, if you know about Marvel, but a lot of people are interested in Marvel, but a lot of times those stories come from <laughs> African stories or like, because you have to keep in mind that white people intentionally went into these before they were able to colonize um, Africans. They actually went into these African countries and learned from them, learned their histories, learned their religions, learned all different types of things. They even, you know, like the first European like Europeans like the Socrates and the Plato and all those people that were coined as being these big intellectuals learned in ancient Kemet you know from the Kemites priests and everything like that so a lot of these stories that we get to see today in the, the entertainment industry um of movies and TV shows come from African stories, right? And like the sci-fi industry, for example, Superman is is said to be related to um, uh, uh, Amen, Osiris, Asar, Aset, you know, things like that. That is ancient Kemet, and they paint themselves, or they actually carve themselves out of stone, which is as 
dark as the night you know what i mean and then you also have uh a new movie maleficent who actually frankly call themselves identify themselves as the moors and she's in all black but she's a white woman like <laughs> that's our history and then they're showing it in in a way that um it's obvious but only if you study who you are and i think that's what the state that we need to get in as if we want to make fiat money out of it is that we can definitely storytell in a way that is beneficial to us but it that it takes like a lot of investment right and then also the idea of um i think even black panther black panther was made a lot of money but it was a white company who was able to get all those proceeds you had some african people that were able to get hundreds of thousands of dollars sure but the company that made all the billions wasn't wasn't black you know so it's it's um it's a lot that you can get out of our own storytelling and doing our own comics and writing our own books like if if we so want that right so that's it also interesting concept because a lot of these specifically the sci-fi stories a lot of the sci-fi stories they're taking from traditional stories that are seen on the continent um that's not it but even like certain documentaries that people make like you have to look at where who are the pr production companies and what do they look like they're taking stories um and, and that's also another problem because then in itself they're able to not only control the narrative but be able to profit off of the narrative um and and america isn't the only one that does that you also have um other other countries that end up doing that as well that i've noticed so it's a it's a big industry uh -huh. all right it's a big industry so we do, you know the continent of africa is actually overblessed for another one million years to come the resources will never finish to tap to be tapped into so it depends on us actually it depends on us to organize ourselves and begin to know that we are sitting on top of diamond and that diamond we can either mine it for ourselves or we can just be crying while other people come and start mining it under our feet all right the malls you made mention of it just now 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 tell me something about the united association of more that is a project that uh, that you have that you are organizing right Alright, so the United Association of Moors, we focus on community development, sustainable innovation, renewable energy, and education. And I would like to start with the sustainable community piece, right? So we our, our idea is that we want to create communities in a space that prioritize communalism and prioritize Ubuntu, which is I am because we are. We want to exist in a community where we can trust each other and in order, once we're able to trust each other and in order for us to trust each other, we have to have that, uh, the thinking of, of being a part of a village in order to raise up that village and protect our children really. So it's really all about the children and that's the idea behind that. I have a a myriad of different partners that's working with me on this um this goal of ours to create this sustainable community and then alongside we're into education right education is a is a big facet as to how we create this sustainable community how do we get people in our communities to want to work uh, with each other because we've had hundreds of years of, of division and divisiveness that has existed and i know they 
although that it may be, you know, different, it may be like, oh, well, that was our past generation. Well, there's something called epigenetics. <laughs> and that means that it carries on within us. Those experiences carries on within our DNA. So we need to fundamentally retrain or uneducate ourselves in order to re-educate ourselves as to how to come together again, because it's not like it's never been done before. We have to do it in a way that is is sustainable, that's going to last for hundreds, if not thousands of years from now, because we never want to be put in this situation again. Um, and the idea of Moors is, is not, some people would want you to believe, because this is why um, narrating your own story is important. Some people want you to believe that the Moors were something that was coined by white people labeling African people. That's not true. Moors, like I'm into um, etymology, I'm, I'm, in, I'm into studying languages, I'm into studying words. Moors was a word that is seen not only in Africa, but in different world and different all over the the continent you can find it in india you can find it in australia you can find it in the americas and you had indigenous groups that identified themselves as murs m-u-u-r-s m-i-r all different types of things and what it means is not a dark-skinned person it actually means relates to it depends actually it can relate to love it can relate to um pyramid it can relate to sunray beam it can relate to or light beam excuse me and it can relate to seafarers because you had moors that controlled the seaports back and forth you couldn't a person from um outside of the continent couldn't come into africa without seeing a moor in, in front of them. It can also mean anchor, right? So it has so many different meanings. It doesn't only attribute to the meaning that white people say it is. And, and that's the importance of actually going back and checking your references as to what language are we actually speaking. A lot of people think that they're speaking English. Yeah, we're speaking English, but how literate are we in speaking this language? There's so much we don't know about this language and it was intentionally like written and rewritten. That's why they have different forms of um, dictionary because they change the meanings of words over time. And you have to think that the English language um, came from the Phoenicians, uh, which is also a, a dark group of people. And they had created the phonetic alphabet that came from even more indigenous languages, Meruneter or uh, Nisibidi. So these are these are really um, it's a very it's a very like funny thing to hear when I hear somebody say, "Oh, the Moors is something that uh, white people coined us and things like that." It's almost like falling into that narrative of saying that. Um, nigga doesn't have uh, any type of african origin right when we have identified that nigga has a relate a correlation with the word niggas which relates to king and, and queen and not only that because that's an amaric but a lot of ngs nig all of that is in our in in different african dialects and in different african languages and, and it can mean a maraud of different things because it's that ing is in our in our um that that type of uh, language um, and a lot of times the white people didn't understand the languages so they just you know go off with the here all right in IGGA whatever nigga and and then they create a, a negative connotation around that word when it's in a lot of African languages right so we have to rethink about what has happened to us and and put critical thinking towards it right so it, it's an interesting world right <laughs>
<laughs> it's interesting work. Not only just not not only that it's just an interesting work, but the project that you are working on is an interesting one. I, I would really must underline that. Now, when you mm, gather some of this information that you gather, what do you do with them? How do you uh, uh, how do you get it back to the people? Because I understand that the project is a kind of um, a give it back. You get it and you give it back. So tell me about that process. Right. So currently the process is whoever I'm in relations with, who I'm partnering with, like they get to have privy to that information because they get to know me. But I'm actually like a small business. So that that's the that's the exposure will be small but if someone learns this information and passes it on it grows we actually run educational programs yearly so i'm running um an educational program this summer um and i'm looking to have about 50 youth a part of that educational program um and i'm looking to expand it beyond that because i want to get actual youth that are on the continent as well i'm looking from ages uh 14 to 22 or even 23 and we go through this information of wealth empowerment one and then two social empowerment so we we try to debunk these social labels that have been been put upon us by going through the history of how they were created why they were created and then i asked my youth all right so what, what do you want to be called and, and why you choose your own identity right what what makes sense to you not what you've been told to, to call yourself but what do you want to be called what do you ascribe yourself as being right because we don't have to identify with this racial concept because even identifying ourselves within this racial concept is supporting white supremacy supporting it that's how race was even created so that's one thing i run these educational programs and then i'm simultaneously working within within communities where i'm able to disperse this information a lot of people don't understand what more is because it's been so convoluted you know so um that's really how it works. I also have a website where I give out this information and I have a podcast as well. Um, it's called the more podcast where you get to get a lot of this information and yeah, so that's what, what we do. Mm -hmm. That's very interesting. I understand that you also do a lot of work within the area of Afro consciousness, right? Yeah. That, I think that's you have a book that is, yeah, yeah, please go. Yeah. I have a, I have a, um, and that's what my curriculum is based off of, of developing African consciousness and trying to get that within the minds of, of other Africans when I'm meeting them. So when I meet someone that's like nearly against saying that they're African, I'm like, oh, hold up, brother. Hold up, sister. Like, let, let's go through this together. Let's see if I can bring you to the dark side a little bit. And we, we go over as to how those negative um thoughts even even were created and try to bring them out of that right and it may take a lot of time like sometimes when you give people a certain type of information they're not ready for then they'll just totally reject it but at least you planted a seed um and and that's kind of the concept as to the work i'm doing even when i have young people join my program a lot of times they're not ready for the information i'm giving them but at least i planted a seed so it'll always be there you know um I'm also working on a, a manuscript currently, which I'm in the process of publishing, is on, it's called Hierarchical Assimilation, um, Play the Game, and it's on basically African people assimilating into this white 
uh, hierarchical structure and how it as we assimilate how it starts to strip away of our cultural identity and what that can do so I talk about that and then I also talk about the solutions to to creating our own communities and building our own empowerment centers for each other and becoming our own agencies for each other as well um, but it, it's going to be different volumes that I create but this is the first one that I, I am in the process of publishing Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for that. All right, now um, let's go back to where it all began. You were born in um, in Washington D.C., right? Say uh, in, you could turn by the hand of time. This is today that you were born, growing up. What would you want to be taught about Africa? Growing up, well, uh, what I would want to be taught about Africa is. And just the realities. I think that I would I would want to really get a, a better picture as to the the state that the African people are in, um, as far as uh, <laughs> as far as being like frankly told that we're in a in an unseen and unheard of war. We're in a war that people can't recognize because people are so comfortable in the states that they're in. People are so comfortable on their phones that they don't see all the different mechanisms as to how their people are being killed in various ways or being oppressed in various ways and we oftentimes forget so i, I would want that to be um addressed to me at a younger age so i could could have spent more time trying to identify solutions for that um i think oftentimes we're teaching our children in obliviousness and i don't i don't think that that's the right thing to do um and also being able to have my children and other children connect at a younger age um, to on the continent to be able to understand the culture and vice versa, being able to have the children on the continent be able to connect with people within the diaspora, whether that's them getting outside of the continent. But I think that's really important. Travel, traveling is is a is a human right. It's a humane right for us to be able to travel. Um, and be able to explore and be able to learn, right? So I, I think that's a, a big one. And being able to have that exposure to debunk a lot of negative stereotypes that exist is also something else that would be really important at a really young age. Thank you so much for that. All right, regarding cultural storytelling, uh, which is the thing that we have discussed today, uh, where do you think uh, African diaspora uh, should be concentrating on in order to um reawaken our history to, to retell our story actually what do you think we should be concentrating on the more i think that we should concentrate on um teaching each other what we know about about our history and about our own stories right like being open to this idea of communalism and as it pertains to sharing who we are, where we come from, and what our solutions are towards. I think that's really, really important. Um, and then also, like, people have different mechanisms to get to the end goal. Like, embracing those mechanisms, but trying to throw away this individualistic mindset of, oh, no, this is my story, or no, this is my project, or this is what I'm doing, you know? Like, we have, we can only thrive if we thrive together. So I, I think that's um, something that needs to be reiterated in this space of, of cultural storytelling with each other. Like, it it's, doesn't work if you don't have this Ubuntu mindset. I am because we are. 
That is true. I am because we are. All right. Um, it is cause of of the journey that you are you are in. You know, um, you are in, in a lot of things. You are in business. You are in research. You are in storytelling. You are organizing people. You are also trying to inspire children to believe in themselves in terms of knowing who they are, where they are coming from. Do you want to tell me that? Do you you have some challenges, or is it all free flow for you? Oh. Yes, <laughs> I think with everything you have challenges, but with this one, it, it's a huge challenge because you have to think, um, like, <laughs> excuse me, um, the people on in the Americas have a different type of mental bondage than the people on the continent. It's it's it has the same root, but it's different. It shows up in different forms. Um, so that, that's a challenge to work with. And it's, it's disheartening to work with sometimes because it shows you how much work you have to do, but you can't do it alone. You have to do it with the, with the community, but sometimes seeing the effects on, on the psyche of African people is, it hurts you. It, it gets you to your soul because I, I see people as my reflection. So when I see someone suffering, um, it, it deeply impacts me and then also seeing people's helplessness like believing that there's no hope for the african or that the african continent or or the african communities um i, I get that a lot you know some people just have no hope whatsoever because they see how bad things are and they feel like the only thing is to accept it right so i, I get a lot of i get a lot of that um <laughs> it's just it's a lot that goes into it um but the helplessness i i really i don't tolerate i don't tolerate that i don't tolerate that we can't do it or it, it won't happen or it's impossible or it won't happen in our lifetime because it's like that 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 mindset is the reason why it won't happen because you have that mindset you've already decided to give up Imagine if you didn't, right? And imagine if people didn't. Imagine if all of us didn't. That's who our ancestors were. They weren't giving up. That's how we are existing as we speak. That's how we're able to speak with each other because they didn't give up, right? So how dare we give up, you know? So, but. I love that. Thank you, sister. I like, I like that. That is very important. Mm. All right. Now, I want you to tell us about your 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 strength in that despite all these challenges you are not giving up you are still fighting you are going on what is encouraging you i mean what is inspiring you despite all um i think it's the vision i have i have i'm a very visionary person and i just i see the community that i i plan on living in and i believe in the power of manifestation i believe in um my higher power i believe in my ancestors i believe in in a lot of different things and honestly i feel like a lot of the work that i'm doing and a lot of the work that i found is navigated to me from god and from yeah god and in the in you know god's children essentially who are my ancestors so i i feel like that that is what's really pushing me forward and keeping me going it has put me in all the different experiences that i've gone through and it's a blessing and it makes me live a life of blissfulness despite all the challenges all right now what would be your final statement because we've talked about a lot of important things today talk about um, what you do talk about you where you are coming from 
um what would be a final statement from the conversation maybe something you wanted to say i didn't ask you or a kind of a conclusion or a kind of a message please go ahead okay my final statement would be to everyone that <laughs> the struggle continues as in we are in war know that we are in war see the war um identify the war alongside with the enemy and unify with each other mobilize with each other and and let's get to it let's work we have a lot of work to do we have a lot of strategizing to do we have a lot of organizing to do all right so i want to thank you so much for the time it has been a pleasure on my part thank you so much thank you so much for having me i really appreciate this yeah welcome all right hang on there i'm going to ask you um anyway first i'm stopping the recording